Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and this is Stuff You Should Know featuring Yeri. That's right. Interesting history edition. Yes, man. I remember hearing this story back as an undergrad. Okay. A hot, sexy undergrad. Mm-hmm. Boy, were you. Um, in learning my history. Yeah. I can't remember what class. It must have been a European history class. But this, yeah, this book just always stuck with me, The, the um, Return of Martin Gare by Natalie Zemon Davis. Did you read it back then? Yeah, yeah. It was oh, assigned nice. as part of the class. It was a great, great yeah, book. But did you read it? <laughs> yes. Okay. I was a very eager, um, hot, sexy, undergrad history <laughs> major. Well, I mean, that's why I majored in English, because I like to read. So anytime yeah. I assigned a reading assignment, I was like, great, I can do that. Yeah, that was one reason I chose history is because I really enjoyed reading history stuff. So mm-hmm. I was like, well, if that's what we're going to be sitting around doing, let's do it. I don't know Agreed. what I'll do with it afterward with that degree, but we'll we'll roll the dice and find out. You envisioned a future career mm-hmm. where two lunkheads with no previous broadcast experience could become, dare I say, noteworthy by talking into a can. Yeah. Yeah, I was gambling on lucking out. To an astounding degree. Yeah, me too, sort of. Isn't that weird? (laughs) Yeah. It's funny how life works. Well, it all worked out, uh, and here we are all these years later, to tell the story uh, of Martin. Is it pronounced Gear? I've always pronounced it Martin Gare. Gare? We're we're, we're talking, we're going to go to 16th century France, so it's probably Martin Gare. Okay. But But we're not not going to say it like (laughs) that. But not Richard Gare. No. Which is ironic. Yeah. Because Richard Gere right. was the lead in the movie Summersby. Yes, which, and? Which was, <laughs> see, look at your improv skills. Yes, anding me. Right. Uh, it it was a sort of a, not necessarily a remake, but a an adaptation on the story of Martin Gere and the movie that starred Gerard Depardieu from the early 1980s. Yes, and? <laughs> I think that's it. I think oh, okay. No, but. Okay, is how we end. Yeah. Had you heard this story before, the story of Martin Gare? Yeah, a little bit. I certainly didn't know it like I know it now, but uh, I I did see the movie Summersby back then. And I knew it was kind of based on that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there have been other versions of stories like this. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, not the least of which is a, a story told in uh, animation form about a man, young man off to war named Armin Tanzarian. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, I didn't even put two and two together. Sure, when Principal Skinner took someone's identity during during the war. And uh, it's sort of a common story, but this is, I think, the OG. Yeah, thanks for that, too, because we would have gotten myriad emails telling us what (laughs) utter failures we are in life for missing that Simpsons reference. Yeah, that was his name, right? Armin Tanzarian? Totally. Man, can you imagine how fun the writer's room was that day trying to come up with what his real name would be? That's right. You know, I've said it before, I'll say it again, That that's Matt Groening's least favorite Simpsons episode, no. or it was at the time, years ago. Yeah, oh, for some I reason he hated it. that one. I don't know why. Huh. All right. I love anyway. it, too. It's good. So, we're talking about a man named Martin Gare who was, like, born a peasant in 16th century France in the Languedoc region in this, like, little area just above Spain, just below Toulouse, if that makes sense for you. 
And like typically, Chuck, when people live and die in areas like this, unless they do something spectacularly interesting or noteworthy or important, they just kind of get lost to history. Sure. And this guy, Martin Gare, actually didn't do anything spectacularly interesting or important or noteworthy. Um, and yet we're still talking about him like 450-ish years, more than that, uh, later. Because his life, something happened to his life that was so interesting mm-hmm. that it's worth doing an entire podcast episode about all these years later. Agreed. Uh, he was born in Spain uh, to a Basque family. Mm-hmm. And pretty quickly, as a toddler, was brought over to France to, uh, how would you pronounce that? Artigat? Mm-hmm. Or Artigat? Or is it Gat? I think Gat. Okay. Yeah, Art- because cake is gâteau and it begins with G. Oh, look at you. Uh-huh. All right, so Artigat. And his family got there, and they got to work pretty quickly, um, setting themselves up in different trades like farming, uh, eventually tile-making and merchanting. Nice. And did okay. Like, they, they didn't have any kind of money, but they worked hard and sort of rose through that um, lower-tiered status to the point where they could marry off young Martin to another family, the DeRolls family, who... You know, I think Dave Ruse, uh, our our buddy who put who put this together for us, mm. he he said that they were well off, but I think they were well off for their lower class, though, right? Yeah, they were up and coming. He puts it, and I think okay. like they were peasant farmers f- figuring out how to enter the merchant class, which at the time was the b- very beginning of the middle class. Okay, all right. Well, that makes sense then. Yeah, so they were working their way up into the middle class. So, um. It was it was a, a like kind of a coup, I take it, for the Gare family to marry off Martin to Bertrand de Rawls, um, when they because the family was a little better off. But yeah, they were really young. Apparently, later on, uh, Bertrand recalled that they were married at age like nine or ten. Uh, apparently, that doesn't add up, and that was probably more like thirteen or fourteen. So you know, that's fine. Right. Uh, Still very young, but this is the 16th century after all. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they got married. And, you know, when you get married back then, you want to start having babies pretty quickly. And they had a hard time having babies because for the first eight years of their marriage, they did not consummate their marriage. Uh, And no one knows exactly why. There were rumors maybe that Martin wasn't or Martine just wasn't into it. they were 13 after all, so maybe, you know, they, they were normal children who kind of thought that wasn't the thing to do yet. I don't know. Or he um, was like, how do I work this? <laughs> he just sounded like David Byrne no, that was in Once in a Lifetime. Right. Uh, some people blamed it on a witch's curse. Uh, they eventually uh, consulted with a wise woman who said, go to these series of masses at church mm-hmm. because mass is always guaranteed to make you randy. Uh, and eat a special cake uh, that would uh, sort of get him going downstairs. And apparently it worked. Crazy. Because they had a baby. They had a little son. Like right afterward. It was a cake made of fireplace ashes I saw. But, you know, they're in the early 20s at this point, by the way. Yeah. Like the appropriate age for that kind of thing. Right. It makes you wonder, though, like, was it self, you know, self-imposed and like he was able to to feel like this curse or whatever was lifted off of him from eating that cake. But regardless, it happened like almost immediately. Bertrand got pregnant and they had a son named Sanxi, uh, who was the same name of Martin's father. So um, 
Martin said, hey, this is really amazing. I've really turned a new corner in life. I'm really interested to see what life brings me now. And just got back to work with now with a son and wife, right? Yeah, but here's the thing. And I think there's really no other way to describe Martin. Uh, everything I read, basically, it sounds like he was a real a-hole. Yes, that was the impression I had, too. He was not a nice guy. He was not a nice husband. Uh, I didn't see anything necessarily about, uh, like, overt abuse. But he just seemed like a real jerk, uh, sort of to his family and around town. And he was kind of looking to get out of town. And his father accused him of stealing grain from the family stores and then selling it for a profit, which was not cool, even if it's your own family. It's probably sure. more uncool right. that it's your own family. And so Never instead, trust family, Chuck. <laughs> never trust family. That's on the shirt. Uh, but instead of saying, like, wait a minute, I want to defend myself, he just took off. And he's like, sorry, wife and young son, but uh, I don't really like you guys that much anyway, so I'm out of here. I see him as like an early 20s Gen Xer. It's like, whatever, man. Right. I can't deal with this at all. I'm out of here. Uh-huh. And you yeah. get the impression that he was just looking for a reason to leave, and he he did. He got it. He didn't defend himself, which, I mean, in 16th century France or Basque culture, um, that is something you would want to do if your honor was being impugned. That was one of the few currencies you had. Yeah. So you would want to defend yourself. So I think it says a lot about somebody at that time who didn't even bother defending himself. He just left. Mm -hmm. And he left his wife and child um, it, without providing for them in any way. Like, sure, they had, like, his, his you know, inheritance, his money, um, his share of whatever the family owned. But he didn't, like, set them up in any way before he left. He just put down his plowshare, put down his tile-making tongs, and just <laughs> left. That's right. He ended up in Spain. He went back to Spain, uh, settled in uh, B-U-R-G-O-S, Burgos. Sure. And became a, a servant for a noble family. And they noticed, like, hey, dude, you're a pretty good fencer. You're good with the sword. Right. We should get you armied up. So he joined the Spanish army, uh, who was at war with France at the time, and he fought for five years uh, before, and this is a very key detail, I think, before we go into our first break, that he was hit in the leg with a bullet and had his leg amputated. Yes. So we'll take a break, hang on to that, put a pin in it, and we'll be right back. So let's zero in on Bertrand for a little while, shall we? The wife, if you uh, don't remember, is Bertrand. Yes, Bertrand de Rolls, uh, who became married to Martin Guerre at maybe age 9 to 14, depending on who you ask. Yes, seemed like a savvy young woman. Yes, now this is new. We got to say this. So like Natalie Zeman Davis, um, you mentioned that film, The Return of Martin Guerre, starring Gerard Depardieu that Summersby was partly based on, right? Correct. She was the um, 
consultant on that, the historical consultant on that film. And she was so put off by the, the retelling of the story that she published her book two years afterward. Oh, and okay. Part of part of that book, part of her big contribution, she mm. made tons of contributions to the his, to the historical record. Turned up a lot of great documents and everything, but subjectively, her big contribution was completely altering the way people saw Bertrand. Yeah. Up to this point, she was a loyal, chaste, devoted wife who would end up being duped. You could say, as we'll see very soon, and under Natalie Zeman Davis's reading of her, um, she was a very shrewd woman who figured out how to navigate within the confines of a male-dominated middle-aged French society. Yeah, and one of the first things that we can bring up to sort of support this, and I, I kind of like this narrative a lot, by the way, mm-hmm. um, is the fact that she got married when she was, let's say, thirteen. Um, just meet there in the middle, and. Uh, you know, he had, Martine had problems, you know, uh, having sex for eight years. And so she was, um, it's speculated from, from Davis, at least that she was kind of like, Hey, this isn't so bad. I don't want to be doing that anyway. Right. Especially with this kid who's a jerk and I don't want to have a kid. I'm 13 years old. So by the time, you know, he's got four sisters. I really love them. Uh, he's, you know, his family seems to be doing okay. My family's doing okay. At the time, that was a big deal. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that she had to wait till she was in her early 20s to finally, uh, to, you know, I, I, I expect lose her virginity to Martin mm-hmm. and then have this kid wasn't so bad after all. Yeah, because she could have asked for the marriage to be annulled after three years passed without it being consummated. Sure. By under French law at the time, I think French Catholic law, um, and she didn't. She's just she. So yeah, that definitely substantiates um, Zeman Davis's claim that like she was just kind of rolling with it. She she was like, okay, I'm I'm kind of happy with this. And she didn't try and get married when he left either. There were a lot of strict laws about remarrying. Like if the husband disappears or something, mm-hmm. uh, you had to have proof of death with witnesses and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And she was basically like, hey, I'm kind of a widow here. Uh, his uncle, Pierre, is married to my mom now. They're taking right. really good care of me. Got a yeah. lot of help with my baby. So I'm pretty cool to just chill here. Yeah. So in, in this in this reading, she's saying, Natalie Zeman Davis is saying, like, she didn't have a choice. Like, again, under French Catholic law at the time, right. like, it, she, it says it, uh, not even when a husband has been absent 20 years or more can a wife remarry unless she has proof of his death. And it's got to right. be like like irrefutable proof that this person has died, their husband's died. She didn't have the irrefutable proof, but she didn't also, she didn't, she didn't like go like take lovers. She didn't ask to, to have an exception made for her. And so it painted her, her, her image among the townsfolk and among her family that she was a chaste, devoted wife mm-hmm. who was just going to wait for her lousy husband for as long as it took. And then also Chuck, on the converse side of that, that just goes to show you just how fully and selfishly um, Martin abandoned her, mm-hmm. knowing full well that she couldn't remarry because she wouldn't have any proof of his death. So he left her in limbo, like, even more. It wasn't even like a, I'm leaving, good luck with your life, you do what you want with it. It was, I'm leaving, you have to stick around and wait until I decide to come back, if ever. That's right. Uh, so things are going along like this. She's living her life. 
again, has plenty of help with her baby. And then one day in town at a hostel, a man wanders in and says, Hi, I'm Martine Gare, uh, and I'm back, everybody. <laughs> like, check it out. It's been a while. Mm-hmm. The innkeeper says, you know, oh, my God, your wife, uh, Bertrand, and your son, it's so exciting to be reunited. And he st- he breaks down crying. And uh, everyone, of course, in town comes running up and uh, to see who this person is, including his uh, his wife. And they all went, huh, you look a little different, Martin. <laughs> I think that's how they initially approached it. Well, because he did. Apparently, he'd gotten shorter, heavier. His nose had changed. <laughs> his um, size, his, his lip wasn't as droopy. <laughs> he, uh, it, let's read that. There's a description from later court records that would happen of um, what Martin Gare supposedly looked like. Can I read this? Please. Martin Gare was taller and darker than this man who showed up. He was a man thin in body and legs, a little bent, carrying his head between his shoulders, the chin cleft like Huey Lewis, a little thrust forward, <laughs> whose lip, lower lip drooped a little, having small teeth, a large and flattened nose, an ulcer on his face, and a scar on his right eyebrow. This person was short, thick-set, strong of body, having a heavy leg, does not have a flat nose, nor is bent, nor has any of the said scars. So an entirely different-looking person showed up and was like, hey, everybody, remember me? Martin Gare. Right. Uh, and it's important to note here that no one in town knew that Martin had lost his leg in the war. Yeah. Uh, so that was obviously would have been the biggest red flag. Mm-hmm. But this guy comes back, and he doesn't look like him, but— he knows all the stories. Yes, he's saying like, big... "Hey, remember when we did this?" And we, he would hang out with the townspeople, and he'd say, "God, remember that time we did that?" Mm-hmm. And this this great time we had over here doing this. And everyone's just like, "Oh my gosh!" Like he knows all the stories. It doesn't look like him, but you know what? This guy's kind of fun and awesome and nice. Yeah. And I don't know what happened to him in the war, but like we'll take him. Yes. So eight years had passed, and he had apparently physically changed drastically, but also, most notably, his personality had changed distinctly for the better. He was a charmer now. And, like you said, he remembered all of these stories, so everybody said, eh, let's, uh, let's see where this goes, basically. Yeah, and there's another key move here we need to point out. Um, right away, he didn't just go back to the to family farm and to the family house right. with everyone. He said, you know what? I have the pox. I'm not feeling so great. So let me stay here at the hostel for a little bit mm-hmm. and recover, uh, which turned out to be a very sort of savvy key move. Yes. You put one, a of the other, too. one of the other things that he did, too, that definitely convinced Bertrand um, and others who were who were there, he said, oh, by the way, I'm going to stay here and, and recover until I'm done with this pox. Um, but can you go fetch my white stockings, my white hose? from this particular drawer in this particular chest where I mm-hmm. left them eight years ago. Yeah. And she went back and went to that particular chest and drawer and found his white socks were there just as she remembered him leaving them there eight years ago. So, like, that and a bunch of other stuff that he seemed to remember that only Martin would know um, really convinced everybody that, nope, this is Martin. He's a little different, but we like him even more now, and we're going to get along with him just fine. Right. And Bertrand also was like, and the other thing is, uh, when you left, you were not very interested in sex from me. Right. And you seem to be really into that now. 
And so I'll take that as well. Uh, and in fact, I will give birth to two daughters in return. Uh, sadly, only one of them survived infancy. Mm-hmm. And her name was, uh, is it Bernard or Bernarda? Bernard. Okay. I didn't know that could be a, a little girl's name back I then. I think when you add an E on the end, it girls it up. Okay. But you don't, uh, you don't pronounce E. No. No, it's all, it's all just for looks. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So to catch up, he's back in town. Everyone likes the new and improved Martin Gear. Uh, he has another daughter, and he's having sex with his wife, and everything's going great uh, until who becomes his main foil gets involved, and that would be his uncle Pierre. And remember, so Pierre Gare, he's a he's another main character in this. He, by this time, after Martin left, married Bertrand's mother. So mm-hmm. now he's Bertrand's uncle-in-law and father-in-law, or stepfather. Yeah. Uncle-dad. So, uncle-in-law and stepfather, that's right. And at first, he welcomed this new, improved Martin back in, it, with open arms. He he was credulous at first, and then he won him over with some memories, the new Martin did. Yeah. And, um, and so, <laughs> Pierre said, okay, let's go with it. And everybody was kind of going along and getting along. And then, I guess, one day, Martin said, um, hey, by the way, Pierre— you remember my inheritance, my part of the land and, mm-hmm. and my part of the wealth that I left behind that you've been managing? Well, I know you made a bunch of money off of it. I feel like that's my money. So can I have my money, Pierre? Can I please? And Pierre didn't like that idea at all. And it's not clear whether he just didn't like that idea or whether he didn't like that idea because he didn't think this was Martin after all and this guy was overstepping his bounds. I don't know. But one of the things that he did was assemble his sons to try to beat Martin to death on the road. And had it not been for Bertrand throwing herself on top of Martin's body, um, they probably would have succeeded in in murdering him. Yeah, I mean, uh, he—it's interesting, like— I fill in a little bit of the narrative blanks just as, you know, someone who's into movies and literature and stuff. Mm-hmm. It seems to me like Pierre was kind of like, hey, everyone seems to like this guy, so I'm not going to be the one to stand in the way. Uh, until... Who am I to rock the boat? <laughs> he didn't want to rock the boat uh, until this money thing came up. And that's uh, – Martin actually took him to court, and that's when things really changed. And that's when Pierre started talking to anyone who would listen and saying – you know what? He's Basque, and he doesn't understand these Basque phrases. This dude was a great fencer. He's mm-hmm. This guy's no fencer. He's not even into it at all. He doesn't look anything like his son. And I think this guy is a fraud. And it, it, it's interesting that the town, like, it seems to be, and we'll get to the court case, but it seemed to be almost divided whether or not people said, no, we think it's him and it's all good. And people have said, no, I think he is a fraud. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just goes to show sort of the power of those stories, because at the time in 16th century France, how else would you explain something like, you know, hey, remember that time we went and pushed over that cow and I and I did a dance on him on his belly? Right. Like, you know, that's a powerful thing back then when you don't have photographs and any other kind of shared recollection that you can easily point to. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he fooled a lot of people. Yeah, he definitely did. I wonder how much he was playing on people's propensity to not want to admit a mistake or that they were wrong. Yeah, too. that plays into it, I'm sure. It's got to. But like you said, the town was divided, and it was divided between Pierre and then this new Martin. And very crucially, 
on the side of this new Martin was Bertrand. Mm-hmm. She threw, she cast her lot with him and said, yep. no, this man is Martin Gare. I will, um, anyone who is mad enough to say otherwise, I will make him die. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a weird way to, to create <laughs> yeah. a death threat, but it, it was. It was a death threat nonetheless. <laughs> but um, this was despite um, Bertrand's mother, who was Pierre's wife, mm-hmm. coming to her and being like, look, you need to get with Pierre here. He's he's on the side of right. And um, she still said no. So, um Pierre also, he had, there There were people who backed him up, like the the shoemaker, right? Yeah, there was a, a little matter of the fact, and this was in Summersby too, that he, he came back from the war with a different foot size. That's a big change. That's a very drastic change. <laughs> it is. And technically, he did come back with a different foot size, but it, it, in a <laughs> radically different way. Well, yeah, because everything changed in 1559. Uh, he'd been back a few years at this point, and a Spanish soldier wanders through town and heard about the story of Martin Guerre and said, hey, wait a minute, I knew that guy during the war, and he's only got one leg. And it's like, that's when, it's like Mike Brady throwing the uh, the briefcase <laughs> in the courtroom. Wow. It's just a hush falls over the crowd. Yeah. And he said, no, this, in fact, is uh, an imposter, an interloper, and I believe he is Arnaud Dutil, and he is a Spanish man of ill repute. Yes. So Pierre, um, like, got word out to nearby villages and, and, and confirmed this, that it probably was a guy named Arnaud Dutil. Uh, who was from a town about 30 miles away called Sajas, S-A-J-A-S, mm-hmm. I think. I think probably you're right. That's about a day or two of travel from Artigat. Um, so it's far enough away, but close enough that you could get, you could you could confirm or deny whether somebody was someone from that town, right? Yeah, and this guy, you know, he's a bit of a roughhouser. He drank a lot and he gambled and he bedded down with sex workers and had a big appetite. I mean, Gerard Depardieu played this guy, for God's sake. So that kind of tells you all you need to know. <laughs> right. All right. So uh, this guy all of a sudden uh, is seemingly um, found out. But the story is, is that he went off, joined the French army, uh, this Arnaud guy. Uh, and the question is, like, did he meet Martine on the battlefield? What we ended up finding out much later is that a couple of old friends of Martine actually mistook him for Martine uh, initially. And then we're like, you look just like our friend, this guy back in uh, small town France, who's actually got a pretty good um, doubt, not dowry, but a pretty good prospects monetarily waiting for him back home. Mm-hmm. And this pretty good looking wife. And all of a sudden the wheels start turning in Arno's mind. Right. Uh, it's not clear whether those two ended up becoming accomplices or else if he was just able to kind of like work info out of them over time. Mm-hmm. But that is that does seem to be, I think he's, he later admitted that's where he got the idea. He's like, how it, much do I look like him? Right, exactly. <laughs> oh, spinning image men. <laughs> oh, goodness. He also was like really... Um, really clever in that, like, he stayed behind at that hostel. Like, he first appeared at the hostel rather than showing up in town. That was a mm-hmm. big one. He stayed behind with the pox. I, I made scare quotes. Um, he, uh, so he could gather more information just slowly yeah. but surely. He just seemed like the type who could get something out of you without you realizing it because you were just having a good time hanging out with him. Right. Like, I wonder if he was like, yeah, because remember that time we pushed over that 
cow? And the guy's <laughs> like, oh, you mean the horse that time when we did right. this? He's like, yeah. oh, yeah, that was totally it. Totally. I was so drunk, I remember being a cow, and everybody starts laughing. <laughs> right. But you didn't drink much back then. Well, I drank on the side. You didn't know. It was secret. Right. <laughs> I was also on the pills. That was German. Uh, yeah, you're really all over Europe right now. <laughs> so, and this is where Natalie Zeman Davis comes in. Like, it's it's clear that this guy was really good at getting information from people without them realizing that he was extracting information, using that information um, with his very, very good memory um, to lull you into a sense of security or trust for him that he was to, to mm-hmm. overcome your instincts against trusting that he's, he was who he said he was. But that no, no amount of preparation and research in the, in the 16th century setting mm-hmm. could have helped him get away with this so thoroughly without the help of Bertrand. That's Natalie yeah. Zeman Davis's, like her thesis is like, there's no way that Bertrand was a dupe, that she wasn't complicit in, in that, you know, she probably, it's tough to blame her because her life improved dramatically after this guy showed up. Yeah, I mean, if she would have caused a stink like Pierre did early on as the wife, it would have been a much, much different deal, I think, yeah. than her completely defending him. And Dave points out, we're never going to know, like, he's in the in the town going to the pub and he's talking with people about the stories, but she's with him as wife, full time, mm-hmm. behind closed doors, and we'll never know what went on there, but in my mind, in the movie version, there's a scene at some point where she goes, hey, listen, I know you're not him, but it's okay, uh, because you're actually a nice guy, and I can make this work. Yeah. I think that jo- Jody Foster's famous line is, hey, bubs, let's cut the S. <laughs> Misa chica may. I haven't seen Nell in so long. I never have. I'm just putting my impression together from from previews I saw like 25 years ago, I think. Yeah, I don't think it was a very good movie, or maybe I'm misremembering, or maybe I'm remembering exactly I think we have to watch it. Oh, boy. I want to watch this instead. So this this whole idea that um, Bertrand is uh, is uh, is a complicit. It's a new idea. It's a modern yeah. take. For centuries, she was in the storytelling. She was duped. Like that's how good and wily this Arnaud Dutil was at being an imposter. He duped the man's wife. That's how good he was. And when you when you hear that, and then you hear Natalie Zimon Davis's take, you're like, well, that's a pretty ridiculous idea. But that's how it was, and yeah. and and as we'll see, Bertrand was never was never um, persecuted or prosecuted for her role in it. She she got out of it as well. Should we take a break? Yeah, let's. All right, we'll take our last break, and we'll talk about the first trial of Martin Guerre right after this. <laughs> All right. Uh, the first trial, I said of Martin Guerre, but uh, we're going to call it the first trial of Arnaud. 
he was put on trial in a town called R I E U X. Ryu. 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 He was put on trial specifically for stealing another man's identity, uh, adultery, taking his property. And Dave points out very uh, aptly that this is like in the 16th century, how do you prove something like this? Mm-hmm. You could give a memory test, but, uh, you know, we, could, we already know he has a great memory and kind of did his homework. Yeah. You could get villagers up there to testify, which they certainly did, but they're biased. You could, you know, compare them physically, which they did, but it seems like that didn't matter much because uh, some people knew, like, he, for sure he had different foot size. Uh, and also, they didn't, you know, have the kind of photographs and handwriting comps and stuff like that. They're just It was a lot easier to get away with something like this back then. Plus, also, for just about everybody who said, oh, no, his, long, his nose was long and flat. Right. Uh, others would say, no, no, it was short and pointy. Like this guy. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Plus, I mean, you've got no fingerprinting, no DNA tests, not even, like, standardized stuff like driver's licenses or passports. There weren't even, like— wagon licenses at the time. So there really wasn't any way but to hear as many people as possible and then just thoughtfully kind of sort through their testimony. And that first trial at Ryu, um, Martin Gare, at a, at a time, or I should say Arnaud Dutil, um, at a time when a lot of people would have shrunk at the challenge, yeah, rose to the challenge, maybe more than anybody ever living would have. Like, this guy defended his honor as much as the real Martin Gare would have. Probably more, actually, as we'll see, as we saw. The other thing I wanted to bring up, too, is, like, I I would say so much of this was impacted solely on the fact that a lot of people like this guy. Yeah. You know? And, and... They like the new Martin, and they're not going to go in there in 16th century France and cause a big stink. They're going to say, no, nah, I think it's him. Mm-hmm. He knew this story, and he's got that. I remember that nose. Right. And what's the foot size anyway? Those, those feet can change sizes, right? What do we even know about that? Yeah, this is what this guy said. So he cross-examined witnesses against him. And for that shoemaker in particular, he said, this man is a drinking companion of Pierre Guerre. Right. Let him show his records about the size of my feet. Right. Um, he also confronted a man who was his uncle um, from Sahas, uh, who was Arnaud Dutil's uncle, who said, yeah, yeah that's Arnaud Dutil right. who's cross-examining <laughs> me right now. He said, I've never seen this man before in my life, and yeah. he's my uncle. Why can't he produce other members of my family that say so? Um, so that's like, what a confidence was, person does. Yes. A con man is like so adamant in their beliefs that that's, that's what they use to trick you. Yes, and again, it wasn't just him. Um, Bertrand was saying, this man is my husband. I would rather suffer a thousand cruel deaths than say otherwise. His sisters did too, right? Yes, that was a big one. So all four of Martin Gare's sisters came and testified at this trial that, nope, this is our brother. Like, he's our brother. I don't know what what else we can say. And yet, despite the, um, the testimony in favor of him, the judge in Ryu said, no, I think you're an imposter and I'm going to find you guilty. That's right. Uh, pay, do a public apology and a ceremony. Mm-hmm. Um, pay your wife 2,000 francs. And uh, this one other little tidbit, uh, we're going to behead you and quarter you. Right. And he went, oh, uh, how about we, is there such a thing as uh, appealing to a higher court? And they said, well, unfortunately there is. And so now we will talk about the second trial. Yeah, of this, 
This was like to the appellate court, this um, group of like the finest legal minds in France. Um, they were called the, uh, what were they called, Chuck? Hold the on. Parliament, the Criminal Chamber of the Parliament of Toulouse. Okay. So they were basically, like I said, the finest legal minds in France who were coming together to hear this story that was pretty much sweeping the, not just the nation, but like this part of Europe. Yeah. That there's this guy who's being called an imposter who's defending himself, and this whole town is split about whether he is who he says he is. And one of the judges in the case was Jean de Corras, um, who went on to actually write the first and earliest account of this case. He actually wrote two of them. He wrote a sequel that delved a little more into Arnaud Dutille's life. Mm-hmm. Um, but the 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 people who came together to hear this case basically got a a even better um, version of what had happened in Ryu. That's right. Uh, and another example here early on in this trial of Bertrand being very savvy with her moves because she was basically like, hey, listen, I'm not going to say that this man is imposter. I think he is my husband. Uh, but if he's not, he sure fooled me. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> not my fault. Yeah. He also, so this was another thing too. He So the judges really wanted to, um, this guy to be the real guy. Yeah. Uh, DeCoros says um, that they they put more weight to the affirmative testimony because— Oh, they wanted he, him to be Martin? Yeah. Okay. They wanted him to be that. Yeah, he, they wanted him to not be an imposter. Gotcha. So they put more weight into affirmative testimony because they, they felt that um, it was more positive than, say, like negative testimony, which was destructive— which makes sense in a legal, like a certain way legally. But mm-hmm. but more more than that, the affirmative testimony also affirmed this marriage and this family and this household that was already intact and that didn't want to be split apart. It's not like Bertrand was saying, this man is not my husband. She right. was saying, he is my husband. Please leave us alone. Yeah, and yeah. the judges wanted to support that. And Arnaud Dutille gave them heaping mountains fulls of stuff to to go ahead and, and go along with this. And he actually, he stood up to all this testimony, did it again. He survived all these memory tests. Bertrand hung in there. He got so good, Chuck, that he on the stand said, I just want you to know, I forgive you for having to testify against me. I know you don't want to, but yeah. I forgive you. I don't hold it against you, dear <laughs> That's wife. Nice. That's how much I love you. And yeah. those judges were like, uh-huh. swoon. <laughs> I wish I was Bertrand. And That's he me, the actually, he won them over, Chuck, and they were about to rule in his favor that he was Martin Guerre, and everybody just shut up about it from now on, except there was a twist that happened, huh? Yeah, and this would be great for an ad break, but we've already done it. So we'll just say, very simply, a man walks in with a wooden leg in the movie version. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, I'm sure in the movie version, it didn't happen quite like that. But the real Martin Gere, please, stood up. And all of a sudden, there he was. Uh, He's back. The real deal. No one knows why he came back exactly. Uh, I, the speculation is that he heard about this story because mm-hmm. uh, it traveled, like you said, kind of throughout you know this region of Europe, and that he was like, "Wait a minute, uh, I'm a jerk, and I'm not going to let this stand." Right. So he he showed up like 
at almost the last minute that he could have. I'm sure had he shown up later, they would have reopened the case, but they hadn't yet ruled, but they were about to rule in Arnaud's favor. Like the gavel and, is up. In the, yes, in the essentially. Movie and this guy shows up and says, wait, <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. the real Martin Gare. Basically. And they treated him like he was potentially an imposter first, too. They took him into custody. They questioned him separately, and they questioned him, and they questioned Arnaud on the same old memories. Um, and both of them responded, like, equally well. So the yeah. judges are like, oh, my God, what is going on here? They'd never had a case like this before. But the thing that I think clinched everything is when when he came to the court, when he was presented in court, his family all recognized him. His sisters all said, oh, my God, we were wrong. This yeah. guy— is the real is our real brother? Sure. And then Bertrand said uh, she gulped very heavily. Was uh, maybe heard to say under her breath, "Well, I guess the jig is up," right. and threw herself <laughs> at the feet of Martin Gare and said, "I have been duped. I'm yeah. so sorry. I can't believe that this imposter got me, but I was fooled. Please forgive me." Yeah, I was desperate. I wanted my husband back, and this guy tricked me, and I'm. Um, I was willing to overlook the differences because I wanted you back so bad, my dear mm -hmm. Martin. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's really interesting. He said he was not, well, two things. First of all, during all this, Arnaud was like, he kept up that con man thing and like went on the attack against Martin, you know, like you're the imposter right. in a big, big way, which really helped. Um, but then Martin was basically, you know, as far as Bertrand goes, he said, leave, and this is a, a shortened quote, but leave aside these tears. The wife ought to know her husband. No one is to blame but you. Yeah. So he, yeah. he wasn't having it. No, he was not having it. And um, the judges even said, well, hey, man, maybe uh, have a little heart. Like, you're the one who left her eight <laughs> years ago. Yeah, exactly. And Martin said, silence. Right. That is not a crime. <laughs> And the judges were like, oh, that's true. It's not a crime. So you just go ahead and keep being a jerk. But we just wanted to put one in on your wife's behalf. But um, she got off. She did not. The judges did not rule against her. They just they determined that she had been duped and that the entire blame was was squarely on the shoulders of Arnaud Dutil, who would now, yes, be sentenced to death. Uh, right. And not only was she let off, but uh, they were very kind to the daughter that she had yeah. uh, with Martine initially, because technically, as far as the law was concerned, that would make her a bastard uh, or not uh, Martine, but Arnaud. Right. Right. Yes. I'm all confused. Yeah. Um, that would make her a bastard, which meant she couldn't get uh, inheritance and stuff like that. But they said, no, at the time she thought it was her husband. So we're going to make an exception here. So they really did her a couple of favors. Uh, but when it came to Arnaud, they really didn't know what to sentence because they had never done anything like this before. Uh, so they said, well, I guess let's kind of go with what the other people were saying. Let's um, let's kill you, <laughs> uh, but we'll just hang you and burn your body. We, we won't quarter you and behead you. Right, right. I also saw that he was sentenced to, to um, be hanged while barefoot and bareheaded. And uh -huh. I cannot for the life of me find w what the problem was with that. I think it was just an insult maybe, but— Probably, like yeah. see his face. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. But also you see his ugly feet too. Yeah, and well, <laughs> his, his feet that are smaller now. And maybe it's also more you need to look upon the people that you have uh, betrayed. Right. I don't yeah, know. that's a good one. That's good. So um, he, he, his sentence was carried out in Artigat. Um, and they actually built the gallows in front of Martin Gare's house. Yeah. Just to give him like a power move. <laughs> really great view of the whole thing or something like that. 
Um, he could he could keep working until the last minute making tiles and then come out and be like, all right, let's go. Right. <laughs> and Arnaud was was marched through town, um, and he he finally now he was like, okay. I'm just going to take full credit for this and admitted everything, didn't he? Yeah. But you guys like me, right? Right. But <laughs> like he's I like, did a good job. I got you guys so good. Yeah, pretty much. He commended the judges for their work. Yeah. Uh, he, he walked through town with the noose around his neck as, you know, they made him carry his own noose around his neck. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, at the end appealed to Martin like, hey, be nice to your wife, dude. Like, I fooled her. Yeah. She's a woman of honor. Like, don't take this out on her. Which is pretty great. Because yeah. he could have, out of spite or out of what, whatever, he, he could have, like, outed her or even not said anything. But he, from to the very end, he he declared that she had no idea and had nothing to do with it. And if you go through, you know, Natalie Zeman Davis's lens, that was a really loving gesture. And it reminds you of, like, these two were probably like deeply in love with one another. Yeah. And and also like it's no short it's no small thing even like in the time of very high infant mortality rates Chuck that they lost a child together and that surely bonded them even further. So like the loss that was created at the the return of Martin Gare the this marriage this actual happy but imposter and illegitimate marriage was torn apart by the legitimate version but the but how legitimate was it? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. If, if it was that unhappy. Yeah. It, it, like this this man, the real man, managed to interlope into something even more real than what he had created with his own wife. Yeah. That's a very confusing statement, but I totally get it. And it also makes it really sad that he that Arnaud was, was executed, and I'm sure Bertrand had to watch and pretend like she was happy about it. Yeah. Uh, no one really knows what happened in the end to Bertrand. And Martine, the real Martine, uh, not a lot of details, but they do know that there were three more sons. Uh, but, you know, I don't necessarily means I don't think that necessarily means they reconciled and were happy. They this was the 16th century. He could have forced himself upon her by all I know, you know, I guess. But they did stay together. And I'm sure he could have gotten a divorce even in Catholic French law at the time. But that so his the illegitimate daughter, Arnaud and Bertrand's daughter. She went to live with the very uncle that Arnaud had said w- he had never seen him in his life on the stand. Oh, really? Yeah, that's that's who went and, and took care of her. And Chuck, our version of the movie ends, I think, mm-hmm. with um, little Bernard growing up a little bit and saying, uh, Uncle, can you tell me about my dad? And the uncle and Bernard start walking back to the house from the, the barn, and the uncle says, Kid... You wouldn't believe it if I tried. <laughs> it's great. Don't you think? Perfect ending. Okay, yeah. So since Chuck said perfect ending, I think that means that it's time for listener mail. Uh, you know what? In lieu of listener mail, we do this a couple of times of year uh, when we rarely ask for support in helping to spread the word. Even here in year 13, uh, we still want to grow the Stuff You Should Know audience and make sure people are tuning in. So uh, tell a friend or a neighbor or a family member about stuff you should know, if you would. And review and rate us on iTunes, because that always helps. iTunes, Spotify, wherever you find podcasts. Wherever you find podcasts. We always appreciate it. This is the show uh, that grew very organically because of this kind of thing many years ago. And we, uh, we don't ask for it much, but we continue to count on that. 
for growth. Yes. So thank you to everybody who's ever rated or reviewed us. And thank you just for listening, too. We appreciate you guys listening, even if you don't lift a finger. Amen. (laughs) Uh, Well, since Chuck said amen, that's the end of this episode, which I think I've already done. I'm losing my mind. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can send us an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.